Hello, welcome, greetings, grüzi, bonjour, uh, all the European languages here at the Consumer uh, Podcast, spelled with EU there on your podcast app. Uh, we're the European Podcast of the Consumer Choice Center, and I'm your host, Bill Words, as always, with Billy Joel's pressure fitting out in the background. Uh, thank you for giving us a five-star rating on Spotify or uh, wherever you're listening to right now. Do recommend us to uh, friends, family, your dog, I don't care, uh, just recommend us. Uh, you can hear it in my voice. Uh, the summer is coming and I do need a vacation, but uh, as an announcement, we will have, uh, I think, two or three more episodes before we take a little bit of a break. I'm definitely uh, going away uh, to uh, you know, get some fresh air and, uh, and, and enjoy some of the, the summer vibes. You are listening to episode 123 on July 13th, 2023. And for this week's episode, I borrowed a clip from our friends at Consumer Choice Radio, where Jal Osowski talked to Luke Hogg, Director of Outreach at the Foundation for American Innovation, about AI regulation. What should we be looking for uh, in the regulatory trends for artificial intelligence? Do check out Consumer Choice Radio on the podcast app that you're using right now. And if you're based in uh, Canada or the US, you might even be listen to it live on the radio. Also in this episode, uh, aspartame, does it cause cancer? All the stuff that they put in your Diet Coke, is that really um, the risk level that you might have been reading about in the media lately? I have a clip of yours truly uh, on that one. And KLM, the uh, Dutch airline, uh, is talking about getting rid of short-haul flights, but there's quite a few obstacles. And on top of that, the Dutch government wants to reduce the overall flights uh, going out of Amsterdam airport. We'll talk about that too now. So the Dutch government just fell, but before it did, uh, it uh, limited the flights at Schiphol airport. And that has been litigated in court uh, over uh, a few times now. Uh, the first court uh, decided that uh, the government could not limit the amount of flights that went out of Amsterdam airport. And now a new court has said that, that court was wrong and the numbers can be uh, limited. Of course, the airline most affected by a limiting of flights out of Amsterdam Schiphol airport will be the Dutch national carrier KLM. Uh, and uh, he says what we've been saying from the start is restricting flights cannot be an end in itself. Uh, you have to realize, of course, that uh, Amsterdam Schiphol Airport is one of the largest uh, airports in the in, in in on the continent in Europe uh, by uh, by mere passenger numbers. And KLM, of course, making its biggest uh, market share, obviously, uh, from 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 those flights. Uh, a group of airlines, including KLM, challenged the government's interim plan, leading a court to shoot it down in April. The government appealed the decision, and judges will now rule on that appeal. And that has already been uh, been decided there. Uh, so limiting of passenger numbers, that seems to be happening. Um, as part of a goal to reduce noise pollution by 20% by 2024, with a parallel target to reduce nighttime noise by 15%, the government last year moved to limit Schiphol's annual flights from 500,000 to 440,000 from November 2024. It aimed to cap flights at 460,000 as an interim measure from this November, writes Politico. And then also in an effort to reduce the amount of flights, uh, the CEO of KLM says that we could indeed reduce uh, flights by getting rid of some short-haul flights, but that more investment in railways are needed. The CEO of KLM, Marian Rintel, used to be 
the CEO of Dutch Railways, so she definitely should know. She flagged, for instance, that the train connection between Amsterdam and Berlin, which is currently six hours and 40 minutes, uh, should rather just take four hours. Of course, since she is the former CEO of Dutch Railways, one wonders why uh, nothing could be done about that. Uh, but then also integration of tickets on high-speed rail lines is not easy. So we just take the example of taking a Thales train from Amsterdam to Brussels. Um, you can't go straight with Thales to Brussels airport. You don't have the morning connections to catch an early flight. Uh, and then Thales isn't even so sure about the liabilities in case you miss your flight when they had a problem. Because if you are on a... I don't know, a three and a half thousand euro uh, business class ticket uh, and uh, and your 50 euro Thales connection is now delayed. Should Thales be responsible? Or how is the liability going to function? It's very possible that not even the train companies really want to have much to do with it. And as Marianne Rintel says, a lot of people might go back to just using their car, which are more reliable than uh, many of the train connections. It's, so it seems that there is some will to do something about it, but uh, it isn't really the practicality because, again, the infrastructure is not there. We talked about that many times. Let's move on to the next issue. Does aspartame cause cancer? Some of you will know aspartame as an artificial sweetener in Diet Coke uh, and, and also different other uh, uh, things it's being added to. The International Agency for Research on Cancer says now that it is... Uh, possibly carcinogenic, uh, but of course the agency didn't really uh, do very good communication about their new classification, and I went on Canadian TV to explain it, and I think the best way to understand the issue is just by listening to me, uh, great ego uh, problem I might have there, uh, but yeah, so it is a five-minute interview I did on Canadian TV, and I think it really goes through the issue, so let's just listen into that. The International Agency for Research on Cancer plans to declare the artificial sweetener aspartame a possible carcinogen. The move would drastically alter the food service industry, as this classification would indicate to consumers that aspartame could cause cancer. However, some big questions still remain. How likely is it that aspartame actually causes cancer? And how much diet pop would you have to drink to increase your cancer risk? Joining us now to discuss the potential link between aspartame and cancer is Bill Wirtz, journalist and senior policy analyst with the Consumer Choice Center. Given the agency's plan to reclassify the substance, should consumers be worried about aspartame? No, they shouldn't be. Aspartame has been a safe uh, sweetener that has been approved in Canada for, and many other jurisdictions since about the 1980s. So there's about, there's, there's about 200 studies that show the safety of aspartame as a sweetener. And actually, I think the debate is a little silly that has been started by the International Agency for Research on Cancer because it just us from the actual problem that we were trying to solve with sweetness, which is sugar. People should be reducing their sugar intake, and this has been the way to do it. And also, uh, sweeteners are very important if you're, for instance, a diabetic. So no, people should not be concerned about the intake of aspartame. So if aspartame is relatively harmless, why does the IARC classify it as a possible carcinogen? So the reason that the International Agency for Research on Cancer does a different classification than literally every other health body in the world is because they take a different approach to assessing harm. So here we get into sort of, I think this is interesting for your, for your audience, the difference between hazard and risk. So in the English language, hazard and risk are 
these are trivial differences between those two words. But in science, it does make a significant difference. Hazard um, is the potential that something can harm you. Risk is the likelihood that it will. So just to illustrate this for you, during the summer, you go out in the sun, and the sun um, is a hazard because it can cause a sunburn or you can get a sunstroke. But the way consumers manage that risk is by reducing the exposure or applying sunscreen. So this is why it is a hazard, but not a risk. And so in this instance, what we have to look at is the actual exposure. Like, what is the dosage that would be problematic for you? And in the case of aspartame, a person with the weight of about 60 kilogram would have to drink 12 to 36 cans of Diet Coke a day for an extended period of time. And my take is, uh, if you drink that much Diet Coke, you might have a few other problems as well. <laughs> What else has the IARC given a 2B classification to? Yeah, so the classifications are interesting. So there's there's four classifications, number one and three. Uh, so there's this one, 2A, two 2B, two and three. One and three um, are uh, the, the, the strong evidence ones. So number one is the things that all the things that can cause cancer, uh, that are, we know cause cancer. And number three is the one that we know do not cause cancer. 2A and 2B are a bit more ambiguous because both of them are described as possibly and probably. And they do quite a lot of heavy lifting in there. So for instance, in 2B, you have... Um, uh, pickled Asian vegetables. So if you're enjoying kimchi, uh, that is also a high carcinogenic risk. And actually, a higher carcinogenic risk is what I'm doing with you right now. As you can see, my background, it's already uh, dark. Uh, I am in Europe. And working at night is considered 2A on the carcinogenic uh, risk level uh, for uh, for people. So I, I think what we're doing here is sort of blurring the line on risk perception for consumers. What would happen health-wise if consumers shifted back to drinks that are not artificially sweetened? So if you tell consumers that aspartame causes cancer, because a lot of consumers will just read the headline, they will do one of two things. Either they will say, well, aspartame is very dangerous. I'm going back to sugar. And that's the problem we were trying to solve in the first place for people not to consume as much sugar in their sweet drinks. Or what they can also do um, is they might conclude, look, if aspartame causes cancer and cigarettes cause cancer, well, then, you know, maybe all of this is a bit overblown and cigarettes are actually not that bad for me. So by relativizing those risks, we're actually giving consumers a very bad perception on the actual risk factors that surround them. Because let's be honest, a lot of people saw this news. They just saw the headline and now they're ditching their diets, uh, diet soda, um, which is actually not what this should be about. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And then last but not least, uh, we have Jal Osowski at Consumer Choice Radio, who was talking to Luke Hogg. He's a director of outreach at Foundation for American Innovation. And they talked about AI regulation, what is needed, what will be done, what can we expect to happen, and what should policymakers know? So let's take it away. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We said, you guys, that we would have a, a nice guest here to try to talk about some of the big technological topics of the day. We're speaking with Mr. Luke Hogg. He is the Director of Outreach at the Foundation for American Innovation. Luke, good man. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me, guys. So we got a lot of things uh, that we could talk to you about. 
Uh, you've you've been writing a good amount on artificial intelligence and what the rules should be. There's been a lot of innovations happening. Uh, just closing my Edge browser now, so I can get the uh, the little Bing AI machine out of the way. <laughs> uh, so you wrote an article uh, not too long ago. Uh, I believe this is back in March about AI democratizing government. And uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. I think there's a lot of interesting points that you made about ChatGPT, OpenAI, um, some of the monopolies of information and um, how things could change a little bit. Um, since you've written this article, um, has anything kind of changed in your thinking on AI governance or basically what the role of government should be when it comes to this? You know, that's a really good question. So it's funny that you're still using the Bing browser because now Google has, um, they've inserted their own AI uh, into Google search. In BARF, right? BARF. Yeah, BARF. Or is it called BARF? I, I don't know what it's called. Um, BART, I think. But it's, it's really fun to, to see these developments kind of happen in real time. And I think um, broadly speaking, when it comes to like talking about AI in the policy sphere on Capitol Hill, um, it's really heartening to see uh, lawmakers, policymakers be on the, the cutting edge of something for once. So there's a there's a saying that floats around in kind of tech policy that Congress is always 10 years behind the technology. You know, we saw this with cryptocurrency. We saw this with the Internet. We saw this with basically every other type of technology. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, Congress is all over AI. Like there's lots of interest. There's lots of people that um, admittedly don't know very much about the technology and really just want to go out and learn um, and get the information. So. You know, um, when it comes to kind of the the AI and democracy piece, I think, um, you know, seeing some of the risks play out and, and, and kind of understanding some of those risks has been um, very educational and kind of listening to some of the smarter minds um, lay out what some of the risks in the long term could be. Um, I think in the short term, there aren't really very many risks that are associated with this kind of technology. Um but in kind of broad strokes, there's there's really kind of two camps that have emerged um, when it comes to talking about AI and, and regulation and policy. And there's kind of the let's study and report um, camp. And that's so um, Ted Lieu uh, and Ken Buck just had a bill that came out. Um, it was basically like, oh, well, let's put together this blue ribbon commission. Basically, let's get all the smart people in a room together and let's talk about this. Um, but you know, we're not going to do broad sweeping regulations. We're not going to be doing crazy things. Uh, it's more about let's learn about it and let's figure it out. Um, then there's kind of the more radical um, side of the equation that is basically we need to regulate this now. I, you know, I was um, I have a confession to make. I tend to listen to National Public Radio on the way to work. It's very soothing. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> done. Shut off. Cut out. Um well, from now on, I'm going to listen to Consumer Choice Center podcast instead. Um, but they were talking about there's especially among kind of progressive liberal circles, there's a lot of concern about um, employment and how this is going to impact people's work. There's a lot of concern about, um, you know, these very potential risks. You know, I think that these are all good things and we can get into that. Um but they're basically clamoring that we need to we need to shut this down. We need to put the genie back in the bottle. We need to set up rules and regulations right now um, to make sure that you know this doesn't blow up the economy. In their opinion, um, so there's that. Those are the kind of two camps, and I'm very much more in the like. Let's study. Let's let's think about this. 
And for that second camp, um, are they? Does it? Maybe I'm wrong, but does it not feel like they are just repeating the same old, same arguments of yesteryear? in regards to any new technological advancement and the impact that will have on jobs, or is it actually different this time? Um, and I ask that because time and time again, whenever something new, let's say the Internet, it was like, well, that, that will eliminate a lot of jobs. That will make certain things more accessible, and there won't be a need for this or that anymore, and do we really want that? It feels like that argument is being pushed forward again, um, I'm just unsure whether or not this is actually the real one or if they're wrong again like they were back then. Yeah, you know, David, it's it's a really good question because um, it is a consistent argument. This, this argument is always used with new technologies. Um, I mean, you can go back to the Industrial Revolution and you can read, um, you know, like the yeoman farmers were worried that industrialization was going to destroy their livelihood and all this kind of stuff. Um, but pretty consistently, as it turns out, um, production goes up and people find new jobs, right? So there's this idea that's floating around around AI that it's just going to destroy the economy. Um, so I'm from Texas and Texas now has the first uh, fully automated McDonald's, I believe, or maybe it's Wendy's. Um, it's like the first fully automated um, fast food restaurant. And everyone's like screeching about this and saying this is so terrible. It's like, yeah, but I don't know. I worked, My first job was at a fast food restaurant and like, it was a terrible job. Like I did not enjoy it. So maybe let's get rid of some of the bad jobs that frees up people to, to flourish and do things that they really want to do. So um, I guess to answer your question more directly, I, you know, it is different in the sense that um, you can see this technology very directly endangering people's jobs. Um, you know, here at the Foundation for American Innovation, we do a lot of work around um, modernizing government, modernizing Congress, modernizing agencies. Um, there's a lot of people that live and work in Washington, D.C., whose sole job is to just, like, fill out paperwork and, like, push paper around, um, you know, in, in systems. A lot of that stuff, you know, if we're not that far away. You could probably do it right now if you really had the, um, the funding to go in and just completely automate those systems. Um, so in that sense, yes, jobs will go away. Um, I would argue that those are jobs that kind of, you know, this is, an, uh, this is increasing the efficiency, increasing the productivity of, of, of the economy. Um, there's risks that go with that, right? You know, the people that understand AI, the people that understand, um, how to use these skills to make themselves better employees are going to have an, uh, a leg up in, in kind of this new version of the economy. Um, so rather than what I would say is rather than focus on, you know, making sure that we keep all these terrible jobs that nobody wants anyway. Um, we should be focused on making sure we're educating people so that they can take advantage of these new technology and make themselves more productive and more efficient. Uh, it's one of those things where, um, I mean, I saw a press release the other day where there was a mine in Canada that had essentially automated um, its processes. So you have mining without the need for miners. Um, and I mean, that was one of those interesting ones for me because I was like, well, that's a particularly dangerous job, or it certainly can be depending on the circumstances. So that's good. Um, but I also knew at the same time, let's say the labor unions were probably 
not so pleased if that's the trend and their members no longer have have jobs or the jobs that are needed in that space fall more on the tech side, coding, et cetera. So it's, a, it's an interesting balance. There are a lot of political questions at play here um, in terms of what's next and, and what is, is I guess, a benefit. I, I hate speaking in these terms, but like a beneficial for society at large. Yeah, and also like these innovations are happening right before our eyes. I mean, we, we go between Barf and whatever's on the Edge browser and Bing and all of this. I mean, these are uh, evolving right now. And you have, at the same time, you've got threads launching, you've got uh, metas, metaverse, you know, sort of evolving. So all these things are kind of happening. I think in our positions, it's always interesting, you know, viewing this as to what the policies will be. Uh, you know, we're familiar with the European approach of like, get those regulations on paper ASAP before the innovation ever happens. <laughs> but uh, Luke, I'm wondering from your kind of position, uh, there's got to be, you know, clearer skies here, because I know there's a lot of the labor concerns, just like you mentioned. But also, you know, do you foresee that there's just going to be uh, innovations that perhaps government regulators cannot even envision? Well, you know, I think that's the real danger here, right? You, you really just put a pin in the problem of taking a European approach. Um, so, um the Europe is currently trying to do this with AI. They have this thing called the the AI Act that's just kind of it, – it's not really super formalized quite yet. They're still trying to figure out exactly what they want to do with it. Um, but basically, it, it creates kind of a do-not-pass-go, do-not-collect $200 regime for, for AI systems. Um, let me put it this way. There's a reason that the vast majority of technological in innovations, whether they be in software or in hardware, come out of the United States of America. There's a reason that uh, Europe's tech industry has, you know, basically completely gone away. Um, and it's because they take that regulate first, ask questions later um, approach. Uh, so there's a real danger that that actually Europe, not only will they not be, I mean, we know for a fact that they won't be leading the way in kind of commercial applications of AI. Um, but even more importantly, they might completely fall behind the rest of the world, right? Um, because of this this system of like, well, we're just going to go ahead and regulate it. Um, that's kind of a, 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 a little bit of an aside. I think, you know, so one, it's really important that the United States doesn't follow that model, whether it be in kind of, you know, that that's a broad sweeping statement as well. You know, whether it's privacy, whether it's competition law, whether it's AI, um, the EU just has an entirely different way of thinking about regulation. Um, that we have seen devastate industries and devastate innovation. Um, what do we do now in the United States? How do we move forward? Um, I think that's that's the question. I mean, really, this is a very interesting time if you go talk to people on Capitol Hill, um, because everybody feels like something needs to happen. Everyone wants to get their jurisdictional hooks into the AI issue. Uh, but nobody really has great ideas for for how to do it. Um, I, you know, I think I, I'm a big fan of this kind of study and report um, idea of, you know, let's put together a commission. Let's get all the smart people in a room. Let's maybe have NIST create National Institutes for Standards and Technology, create some standards. You know, like let's start. Um, they just came out with a risk management framework for AI uh, a little while back. That kind of 
this voluntary standards approach um, is is the way that I'd like to see this go forward. Um, because once you place the hard regulations and the hard lines, then there's no going back. Uh, I was just going to say, what would you say to those who would argue that the space is too fast moving and that the the conversation and study approach, while it might provide some kind of fruitful guidelines at some point, that they'll always be lagging behind and kind of chasing the dog. Is there any merit to that? I mean, certainly there's merit to that. I mean, it's, as I said, DC is often 10 years behind tech. At least this time, they're ahead of the curve and they're kind of, you know, well, not even ahead of the curve. They're kind of like on the curve, right? Um, I guess my response to that would be, um, you know, if you want to create, if you want America to lead the way when it comes to technology, if you want us to be the, the 21st century economy that, that we promise to be, um, you know, we're going to have to like kind of take some risks, you know, um, there are risks that come with this technology and they should be considered and they should be thought about and they should be potentially, uh, I'm going to use the R word They should potentially be regulated. Um, but that being said, creating hard lines because, you know, to kind of flip the question on its head, David, um, because the technology is moving so fast, that in itself is a reason to not regulate it harshly and heavily. Um, because by the time you can get through the legislative process, the regulatory process, I mean, notice and comment rulemaking takes at least 90 days. Uh, in the next 90 days, there will be a new technology uh, in this space that you know, wasn't considered when they started that regulatory process. And that's just 90 days. That's three months, right? Um, now imagine what happens when you draw the line today uh, and you know, what, what things won't happen in five years because you drew this hard line today. Um, and so that's, that would be my response. You know, yes, there are risks. Yes, we should think about them. We can handle them on a case-by-case basis. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. As you can see, I recycled and borrowed for some content for this week uh, because I had some guests cancel on me uh, for uh, for the recording this week. But then next week we'll be back. And, of course, we will be talking about gene editing. Uh, I know, I know some have been uh, asking me about it already. We will be talking about gene editing um, most likely next week with a guest uh, who is most educated on the issue and will enlighten all of us on the new legislative changes that will be happening in agriculture uh, in Europe. So stay tuned and uh, I'll see you Thursday. You have to learn.